Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Bloodstream Media and made possible thanks to our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. Hey, and I am that other host, nonprofit nerd, and your fellow advocate, Amy Board. Today's is a special episode of the Bloodstream Podcast, a tribute honoring the life and work of Val Bias, who passed away unexpectedly on December 30th, 2021, at the age of 63. He's survived by his wife, Robin, son, Langston, his brothers, James Jr. and Byron, and a big community of blood brothers, blood sisters, friends, and family. Amy and I both had a personal relationship with Val, as did so many active members of this community. We'll share a bit about our connection to him, and then you'll hear Val, in his own words, share moments and perspectives from his life as we give the majority of this episode over to audio from various interviews I did with Val over the past several years. Big shout out to producer Keith and editor Jose for the great work they did on bringing this special episode together. Val grew up in Buffalo, New York, and relocated to San Francisco after a college internship first brought him to Northern California. He worked with children and teens first at the YMCA, then as a counselor for the region's first hemophilia summer camp. He went on to become the camp's executive director, a position he proudly held until relocating to New York City in 2008 and taking on the role of chief executive officer at the National Hemophilia Foundation. During Val's tenure as NHF CEO from 2008 to 2019, the country was undergoing massive healthcare reform, and Val was a staunch advocate for ensuring people with pre-existing conditions through the Affordable Care Act and eliminating caps on lifetime coverage. He also launched numerous programs and initiatives for NHF, strengthening the regional chapter network, enhancing support for women with bleeding disorders, and creating mentorship and leadership opportunities for young people. Amy. How did you first learn the news and and what's been on your mind since you learned about Val's passing? I heard uh, from an email that you received as well. Um, And it was the night that we had freak uh, fires um, that actually destroyed several neighborhoods in Colorado in Mm. December. And we had been watching the news all night and heard about Val right before we went to sleep. And I think Rob's words were, um, it's just evident that day about how life is so fragile. I think that's what we both came away with. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. And, and I'm going to share some of my experience with Val uh, a little bit later. For now, I have three quick pieces of housekeeping that I just got to get out of the way before we hear from Val in his own words. First, uh, these are Val's own words. He was always willing to share very openly with me. And frankly, to be honest with you, some of his words and characterizations are not necessarily those that I would use, and that's okay. Val led with compassion and candor, And that is very clear. Second, next week on the Bloodstream Podcast, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled fourth Friday of the month episode. Subscribe to Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or visit the show page on bloodstreammedia.com. And lastly, the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Visit bleedingdisorders.com to learn more about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. For wherever on your journey you may be, visit bleedingdisorders.com to learn how Takeda can support you. With that, please enjoy this segment on Val's life and journey in his own words. 
My name is Val Bias. I have severe hemophilia factor 9 and have lived with some sort of pain throughout my entire life. For the state of history, factor 9 is the royal disease, in case people didn't know, <laughs> that the czar in Russia uh, children had. I remember, you know, being five, six, seven years old and really struggling with going into hospital and that initial IV that they stuck into you. And there are four people around the table holding you down so that you don't move too much and so forth. And I remember, you know, getting my kick in and then bloodying one doctor's nose. That was my <laughs> claim to fame, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> and I got used to getting sticked and getting that, that they took blood all the time. You know, you get used to it. You know, I had a really strong support system at home. And between my mom, she had four sisters, and we were all boys, and we were the light of their lives. We mm. were told that we were strong and beautiful and powerful and could have anything we wanted in life. I grew up in a family of, no, you didn't, and yes, you will. <laughs> That was kind of like, so you were well-behaved um, and well-taken care of and well-fed, but there were lines you just passed, you didn't go down, okay? And they were very judicious. They didn't, there were not rampant beatings of children. There were, it was almost like they were all very well-coordinated. Mm. So when mm. you were at a family gathering, if someone stepped out of line, it was very public, whether it was verbally or whether you actually had to have a beating, a spanking. Mm -hmm. yeah. And my Aunt Sugar would always say, boy, go give me that switch. <laughs> and she would make you go take a switch out of the garden. And then that was supposedly, but Aunt Sugar rarely hit anybody. But that tone of, boy, get me that switch, was all you needed to like straighten up and get your act together. It's funny growing up with hemophilia is you generally have a champion or a couple of friends who look out for you. That was always my experience. So I had a couple of friends who played with me while I was sick and looked out for me when I was able to get around, mm. guarding me from too much, never would let anybody approach me sort of in the fighting mode. <laughs> and I don't know whether that was due to my personality or my mom. My mom was pretty popular in the neighborhood, so. Why, why was your mom popular in the neighborhood? My mom just had this sort of gregarious personality. They referred to her as Pretty Miss Liz. And she just had this outgoing, effervescent sort of personality where she knew everybody. She had a relationship with everybody and it turned out to benefit me because anywhere I went in the neighborhood, there were eyes on me. Mm. Okay? So I couldn't go very far away without, I mean, I could go 10 blocks away from house and she would know where I was at mm. or know what I'd done because she knew that many people in town. So, In general, what pain management or coping techniques did you develop as a child? Imagination when I was at home, TV. Did you have go-tos on TV? Oh, yeah. I love Lucy. I've seen every iteration of Lucy there is. So many, many times, every series. And color remastered. Yeah, colored, black and white, color remastered. Petticoat Dungeon, Gomer Pyle, 
you know, just all of those comedy series that... Would comedy know, be what you would gravitate to? Well, they were half-hour sitcoms, so there was a lot of that on TV. You know, I you know, wasn't old enough to find the soap operas interesting. And that's what was on during the day, was, you know, sitcoms. They started around um, three or four in the afternoon, and then there was a short section of cartoons every afternoon of course Saturday all day there was or at least all morning there were cartoons so yeah I watched those sitcoms over and over again you know I was used to that sort of long duration of pain tolerance we went into the doctor I got I think two or three days of fresh frozen plasma which I like to describe as a slushy dripping into your veins so you're freezing and you're cold and and it distracts you from the pain. <laughs> How long would one sitting be? Eight hours a day. Yeah, it was a very slow trip. So it seemed like eight hours a day. Maybe it was six, I don't know. It was a long time. And it was intense enough to me that I couldn't read while it was going on. I had to occupy myself with my imagination as opposed to doing something else. That imagination and love of stories that Val developed as a young person, laid up, suffering from bleeds, is very relatable. In fact, I too binge-watched I Love Lucy and the Lucille Ball Show as a kid. And before my wife and I named my daughter, the only Vivian I ever knew was Vivian Vance. Oh. Maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe that did have something to do with it. Another piece of Val's story that resonates with me, and I imagine many listening, is how hemophilia impacted his experiences at school and with peers. I was in a wheelchair at school during that period of time, and the the school was... We, we had enough wheelchairs for everybody, but the kind of wheelchair you got <laughs> depended on what we had available. So I had one of the big two-wheel wooden back wheelchairs. Uh, the great thing about that was that it reclined a little bit. <laughs> so I had the reclining wheelchair. And the two wheels on the back were small. So it was easy for me to lean forward and pop that wheelie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the the levers to prop your legs up, they were wooden things that you popped into place and then you pulled the lever and it came down Hmm. and the back was like way above my head and you could make terrific circles in that thing though it was and it was the wheels were a little bigger so i was a little faster than a lot of kids but it was a little wider so i couldn't get through as many spaces as some of the other kids could it sounds like you have fond memories of a wheelchair i did i i do and i and i had I can't say, you're in a school with a bunch of children, and I appreciate you using the special needs term. We were crippled children. That's what we were called back then. (laughs) I always try to explain to people, I had two experiences in my life. I was a crippled child, then I was a child with a disability, and then I became a child with a chronic illness and, you know, now I actually have a defined disease. <laughs> so, and it's, I felt the same way about the color of my skin. I was colored and then black and then African-American. And there was a progression in terms of how you were labeled. I took up volunteering at the local children's hospital. So I, I did that. 
That's that was my thing, and people knew that that's where I disappeared to. That was my that was my haven. There was a big learning curve or a big compassion that was built into me from going to this crippled children's school. Because when I entered, I was the healthiest child there. There was no joint damage, and I could walk, and I could run, and I could jump. Whereas all my other classmates had wheelchairs and real physical limitations in terms of what they could do. So that compassion, and I always tell this story about one of my best friends at school. He had clubbed hands and feet. So we have to take turns at lunchtime feeding him. Okay, we, we all took a turn turn doing that. Yeah, we took turns. Each one of the classmates would, you know, we would rotate and we were his best friends. So there were three or four of us. And we would, each day, somebody would take turns feeding him. And that builds a lot of compassion for somebody else. My other best friend had muscular dystrophy and was declining. He wasn't very strong, but he was really intelligent. And we sat together and worked together all the time. And I had another friend who was a dwarf. Um, who was never very happy. The, the path I took in work was working with children. And so I was preschool teacher, school-age counselor, things of that nature. So you become an advocate doing that because you're working with kids and they need stuff and you, you, know, you want to provide them with as much support as you can, children, and just this melting pot of kids. And I remember one day at lunchtime, the parents would come out of class and they'd all go over to the park for lunch. And one day, this one kid's mom didn't come back. She was killed in the park. And that was a tough day because we were taking care of her kid. And it was a while before somebody came and got that kid. You know, So it was well into the evening or somebody, they found a family member to come and get that kid. So he had to go somewhere else at that point. But it was wow. it was a serious lesson to me. So probably the worst of it, but it, it really, again, fostered that advocate, kids in need. And I got to work there. I got to work at the mission in the YMCA where kids were also in need or just had a language barrier that needed to be bridged. That was a tremendous experience in terms of me just no quit Mm. sort of thing. What has kept you in the darkest of moments from ever going there? Will will not to fail. That has less to do with me and more to do with who the person my family raised me to be. I know a a lot of people who kind of settle for where they're at and just can't go any further. And I know these people. I love these people. I feel their pain. But I've always felt like I have this internal drive that my family gave me to push that extra step that, yes, you can. And that's what drives me. I've always had that little energy ball in the center of my body that says you can go a little further. A lot of powerful stuff in there, Amy, let's pause here for a moment. What stands out to you from what you've heard thus far? You know, I, I think um, many of us in the community, I think when we heard of Val's passing, started to reflect on his 
time of leadership when he was when he ran NHF for all of those years and hearing where he started reminds me of you know why I think he was such um, a charismatic leader. He he was funny. You know that laugh was just marvelous, and mm-hmm. he had the ability to speak to people in an accessible way. Like he was he was very accessible as a leader, as as a CEO of a big you know organization. I was his employee, I, and I was like a. Pardon my French, but I was like a peon employee. You know, I was like a chapter executive (laughs) that wasn't in the office all the time. And he was very accessible. And hearing his will to continue to go in order to not fail, I think to push a little harder, um, that that was instilled in him. Also, with such grace, you know, he was not um, a hard, he did not have a hardened soul. He was, um, he was really tender. And I just hearing, you know, these stories, I think one of the the things that was most difficult for me when he passed is that I, I think I always assumed that I would have one more or several more you know, uh, cups of coffee with him. Like I, I had some questions, you know, I just wanted to like ask him about his life. And, you know, I, I think I, I just thought he would always be there. I mentioned at the top how open and vulnerable Val was whenever I'd ask him for an interview. And mm-hmm. perhaps the best example of that was when I asked him to share his and Katie's story for my documentary, Bombardier Blood, mainly because it required him to relive some of the most challenging days of his life and involves the story of meeting and losing his first wife, Katie. In terms of a partner, I never thought that would be a problem, and it didn't really become a problem for me until I became HIV positive. Uh, Now, by that time that had occurred, I was already in a relationship, and we were destined to be married anyway. Um, Katie and I met on a blind date. I had a friend who was my roommate, and he was dating a woman, and we wanted to go to wine country, and he said she has a friend. So he was taking her home um, one night, and he said, why don't you tag along, and you can meet her friend. And I met Katie, and we made a plan, all of us going to wine country together. And we did, and we did, you know, several tastings during the day. We did a little picnic on the lawn sort of thing. And, you know, I watched very carefully what she liked and what she didn't like. And secretly, I went and bought a bottle of wine that she liked. And at the end of the day, I presented it to her. And she said, how did you know? And I said, watched and listened. And it came as a surprise. And that started us off. We started dating regularly and just kind of clicked as that happens. And then we had a little breakup. Katie, we were going along really well. And then Katie moved one block away from my apartment. And it was like, this is a little too tight, (laughs) a little too close. And I mean, literally, I was at 24th Street. She was on the corner of 25th Street to the point we could use the same laundromat And I was young and single and in San Francisco, and that was just a little too close. So we uh, broke up for a while, and I didn't see her for, I mean, better part of a year. 
And I worked for the YMCA then, and I was down at Fisherman's Wharf with my group of kids, Ripley's, believe it or not. And I ran into her on the sidewalk. She was touring Fisherman's Wharf with her sister who had come into town, and we reconnected. I invited her to coffee, and we got back together and had just picked up where we left off, except it was a little bit more serious at that point. You know, we both dated a lot in San Francisco, and we I think we were reaching the end of the dating scene thing. So it was great to have somebody that you, you liked and that you believed in and that you were friends with, most importantly, that you were friends with. And that friendship and, and dating led to love, and uh, um, asked her to marry me, and we went on from there. So we were married in 1987, and in 89, I heard a crash in the bathroom and ran downstairs, and I couldn't get into the bathroom because she was blocking the door. So I had to push my way into the bathroom, and she was down on the floor unconscious, and uh, but breathing. I called an ambulance. They took her to the hospital, and she was diagnosed with toxoplasmosis. And we, as we went through that, and they said, oh, no, that's not what it is. She has a brain tumor. And we were told on a Friday afternoon, she has a brain tumor. She has six months to live. And that was the longest weekend of our lives, just really, because we had no other alternatives. So on Monday, I called my hemophilia treatment center nurse, and she said, let's get a second opinion. Why don't you bring her over to UCSF, and we have a surgeon here. I'd have have take a look at her. And uh, I brought her over, and he examined her, took some uh, x-rays, and he said, sat us down. He said, I can get that out of there. No problem. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it was like a new life. And so she had the surgery, moved the tumor successfully, but the surgery zeroed her immune system out and the HIV kicked in. Katie, like many partners of people with hemophilia in those days, contracted HIV from Val. So while the terrifying brain tumor had been successfully addressed, the critical health challenges were only just beginning. And not just for Katie and Val, but for the entire hemophilia community. So she started, we could see what was happening around us in the community. A lot of people were beginning to react to what was HIV happening in the community. There were very few deaths at that time, but you could see families struggling with the reality uh, that was facing them. And as we would participate in groups and in circles, you could see what was happening to people. Katie emerged as a, a leader or a leadership voice, so she was an accomplished executive. And uh, she decided what she was going to do was speak openly about her HIV infection. And in the San Francisco Bay Area, she was one of the few white heterosexual women to have HIV, and she spoke on many panels and was very upfront and out about having HIV and educating the community about that and sought after because she was only one of few white heterosexual women 
she'd show up to the panel and she'd have a business suit on. I often tell people that if Katie had lived, she would be the CEO of the National Hemophilia Foundation, and I'd still be working with preschool. It was one of the most painful things I've ever lived through um, to watch her deteriorate and know that I was the primary cause of that. And to her credit, you know, one of the last conversations we had was her telling me that it was not my fault, that we had both participated in our relationship fully, that I was to mourn appropriately, but then I was to get on with my life. I was to marry again. I was to try to have children. I was to try to have the career um, that I wanted to have, that she believed in me and that I was not to carry this as a weight for my entire life. And I was able to move on for that. It took me almost a decade to come out of that that fog um, and then start to piece my life together and think about dating other people. And so I filled my life with the work, became very active at the national level. I really didn't think I was going to ever marry again. Didn't have a lot of relationships during that time, a very sort of lonely, stoic time in my life, which, of course, for me, allowed me to focus on my work. Val's work kept him busy. As you're about to hear, in the early 90s, Val was leading the charge on what ultimately became the Ricky Ray Hemophilia Act of 1998, a landmark piece of legislation that provided compassionate payments to individuals with blood clotting disorders, such as hemophilia, who contracted HIV through the use of anti-hemophilic factor administered between July of 1982 and December of 1987, as well as for certain persons who contracted HIV from people with hemophilia who were infected. By 94, we were well into the campaign to take our fight to Washington. <clears throat> the executive director of the foundation at that time called me up one night and said, you know, Val, we've decided that you should be the one to go to Washington and represent NHF in terms of telling our story. I try to tell people the story about more about the bleeding disorders community experience with HIV and AIDS than the larger story that they probably saw in the news. I think it's important to make the distinction that people with uh, bleeding disorders who contracted AIDS did so through prescription. That not that there was a good AIDS, bad AIDS, but that we had a a debilitating chronic illness that required us to be exposed to HIV through the products that we use to control our bleeding. And that that's how we contracted HIV and that it affected 50% of our population of 20,000 people contracted HIV. And today that there are about 1,200 of those people still alive is a significant explanation of it. I really try to, to not draw a distinction between the larger AIDS experience and hemophilia other than how we contracted it. Val's lobbying work, bringing him back to his East Coast roots, had an unintended impact on his personal life as well. I was, my mom lived in Buffalo, New York. 
So when I was in, stationed in Washington, D.C., I was able to visit her a lot more often than when I was in California. So whenever I had a break, I would try to go see my mom, which meant I was able to visit my hometown And during my high school years. I worked at the Children's Hospital, the place I spent most of my time as a child, in the rec room, and they had a kids for work program during the summers, and I participated in that, and I met a good friend of mine there and went back. He was in the theater community in Buffalo, and I would, every time I went to Buffalo, I would try and look him up. So there's a theater bar in Buffalo, and every time I'd go and visit, I'd go into that bar looking for him, and for several years, I, I didn't see him. So I went in on a visit, and I I saw him, and you know we rejoiced and embraced and all of that. And the woman he was talking to at the bar was Robin, and he introduced me as being one of his dearest friends, and indeed that was true. But that opened the door to me talking to Robin, and um, you know, at that point in my life, I had nothing to hide. I was well into the campaign with Ricky Ray, so you could probably find out I had HIV. I was pretty public about it. So I I told her my story. You know, I told her about my hemophilia and my HIV, and I even told her about Katie to some extent. Robin and I, after being introduced, talked till 4 o'clock in the morning, and I asked her, could I see her again? And she said yes, and she said something about being on time. Um, I don't know exactly what context that was in, but that seemed to remain in my memory. So I drove over to her house, and when the clock struck, whatever time I told her, I I rang the bell. (laughs) I was right there on time. We went out, we had a lovely evening, and got to know each other even better. Took Robin to Toronto for the first time. And we spent the weekend in Toronto and we went to see Rent together for the first time. And a joyous weekend kind of sealed our relationship, started dating long distance between Washington and Buffalo. Ricky Ray was winding up, Bill passed in late 1998, I believe, and it was time to go home. Many people said, you know, Val, you're really good at this, and I don't think you'll ever leave Washington, D.C. And I would look them in the eye every time and said, you know, when this is done, I'm going home to California. And I I said uh, to Robin that next year I'm going to move back to California, and I asked her, would you come with me? And I said, I'd like to take you out there beforehand and meet some friends and see if you like the area. And she was getting ready to move away from Buffalo anyway. As an imaginative and visionary storyteller whose roots in advocacy and community service always seemed to go back to children and young people, it's only fitting to end with Val's thoughts on success and possibility for people with bleeding disorders. Most of life's work is in the getting there. And that's what I've always tried to teach to young people that I've worked with is, you know, it's it's not attaining the goal. It's what you do to get there that makes it all the more sweet. And that's what I hope it serves 
to kids in the community is that nothing's unreachable, that you can achieve whatever you want. And that's the story we've got to tell. It's what's the possibility for adding to society? What's our value to society? I always have looked at hemophilia, even though it has been a burden in my life, it's also been a gift of compassion that I've learned for other people. It's also been uh, a gift learning how to deal with a struggle. So I always tell kids who say, you know, I always ask them, what, what is the single biggest obstacle in your life? And they'll often mention their bleeding disorder. And I've often asked them to think about it in a different way. Maybe it's not an obstacle. Maybe it's you were dealt this card because you're supposed to have this card because you're supposed to set this example, because you're supposed to make a difference, not only in your life, but somebody else's, whether they have a bleeding disorder or not. Val Bias was born March 20th, 1958, and died at age 63 on December 30th, 2021. His unparalleled professional career, loving family, and fleet of mentees and colleagues now serve as his living legacy. He was a really tender man. And I think I had a kind of a unique back backseat view of how he led. And, you know, he was... Um, he was a visionary. He saw grand things. You know, he saw grand things for the bleeding disorder community, for the National Hemophilia Foundation. And I think um, at the heart of all of those things was, was that core belief within him that you know, we as a community have something to offer. And um, that sense of otherness was so apparent in how he related to other people, how he led. Um, he, he, he truly was, was um, he was one of a kind. I really miss making him laugh, you know, I loved, I loved making him laugh in a room full of people where, you know, people were like hesitant, you know, cause he's like the big CEO and I, and I miss, you know, he would do that belly laugh. Cause I would like make fun of him in public on purpose, you know? <clears throat> it was also not hard to make him laugh either, which... No! You know, for such a He was so accessible. Laugh. He was not... You know, people, like, put him on this pedestal like he was this, like, big to-do, and he, he wasn't. He was just, like, a normal human. And, um... You know what? I think his dignity is something that some people didn't know how to respond to. I th that's a weird thing to say, and I've never thought yeah. of it until you just said what you said. But I think he carried himself with such poise and grace, which you've spoken to, and dignity. And I think it threw people that he didn't yes. have more uh, forced stature about him. Or yes. he was disarming in his, 
his accessibility and yes. his normalness. And yes. that was something that I immediately gravitated to in him was those exact qualities, his normalness and his humility. I think as the CEO of very powerful, well-led organization, I never lost the sense that he got his start as a camp director. And if you've ever been involved in a summer camp program, and especially in a bleeding disorder summer camp program, you will recognize a fellow camper Mm -hmm. a mile away. Mm -hmm. And like he led that way. He led that way in in big fancy meetings. I watched him do that. There were times where I was like, Val, I'm not trying to talk to you about camp right yeah. now. And he'd be like, but at this time at camp, and I'm like, Val, we're not talking yeah. about that. But his, he, he'd go back there a lot. It was a home yeah. base for him and where he yes. learned so much of who he was. Yes. And I think, you know, uh, uh, something that will, I hope, you know, will never die that I just want to say, I think, you know, he was so instrumental in terms of our legacy and our advocacy at a national level. And, but I also, you know, something that's a little quieter, I think, is he had a vision for the local communities in the hemophilia space, in the bleeding disorder space. And he you know, advocated and fundraised to raise a bunch of money. He knew that these organizations would never change until there was like resources to help them do that. And prior to Val being CEO at NHF, national, local local chapters rather, were, you know, like mom and pop shops, bless mm-hmm. their hearts. I mean, you know, they really truly were. There was mm-hmm. industry on every single board of directors because, you know, that's what we had to do. You know, moms were running these things. It was all volunteer led. It had a lot of heart, but like not a lot of reach. And he knew that we had to put resources and funding behind the the local chapter network in order to build the community. And our chapter network is extraordinary and it is single-handedly because of his vision and his dedication to do so. And he he hired me, you know? I mean, he, he hired, the chapter organization was desolate and he, he hired a person to come in, you know? And I, I just, I don't want that, to be lost within his legacy, I think it's a part of it, is that he really, truly built our our network to be as powerful as as it is today. And it's because of his, it's because of his person-to-person, you know, care that he was able to see that. Not a lot of people would be able to see that and to prioritize that. You just reminded me that he gave me some friendly grief when I hired you. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> when National was also interested, um, it was like a touche kind of moment where it was like, oh, ah! you got Amy away from me and over to you." I say, "Well done." It was a it was a Lexi like kind of thing, and yeah, <laughs> it was a funny it was a funny moment for me though to be in that that spot in that moment. Yeah, he was um, he was really loving to me. He he was uh, I called him personally. And um, we both cried. Mm. <laughs> we both cried. And he said through tears, um, he goes, he goes, I'm, old, I'm not upset because you're going to Patrick. <laughs> 
but he, we both really cried. And, you know, it was painful. And I, um, I thought he'd be here. I thought I'd be here for a while. You know, I was like, I was banking on it. I was banking on that conversation when we were far enough away from us both working there that we would be able to have a cup of coffee or like a vodka soda or something, you know? And, um, he, he was the real deal. For me personally, I have much to be thankful for and to thank Val for, but more than anything, I will miss his laugh and his friendship. We had a vast array of wide-ranging conversations over the years, and since his retirement in 2019, we're able to have more frequent text chats and long calls where we'd swing around the league and discuss all things NBA or chat about the latest trends in television. He'd share updates on what he, Robin, and Langston were watching. I always love hearing Langston's take on shows and actors. Uh, Fortunately, I still get those. We'd chat about theater and the arts, academia and diversity, food and beverage, of course, government and civic duty, history and standout figures. I loved the exercise of thinking about the world out loud with Val and seeing what he'd volley back my way. More than a leader, more than an advocate, maybe even more than a blood brother, I miss my friend. I'm sad, I'm angry. I am in the grieving process. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful to have known him and to have called him a friend. So thank you, Val, for everything. Thank you. You will be missed. You already are. Hey, community, if you would like to read the Buffalo News obituary on Val or some of the tributes that have been publicly shared online, check out the program notes in this episode in your podcast player. You'll also find them posted on this episode's webpage of bloodstreammedia.com. And with that, that is all for this episode. Amy and I will be back next week, January 28th. And in the meantime, please share this episode on Val with anyone who you think may take some comfort or joy from listening to it. Share the link, direct them to the Bloodstream podcast on Apple Podcasts or to the episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. You'll also find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Amy and I can be found in those places too, as well as on good old LinkedIn. I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am that other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.